Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Megan Likens-Rich, Deputy Director of the Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland and a proud member of the City Club. I am honored to introduce today's speaker, Principal at Chu Communications and the former Executive Director of the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian American Pacific American Experience, Ron Chu. The Wing Luke Museum has served as a cultural cornerstone for the Asia Pacific American Experience in Seattle for more than 50 years. Located in the Chinatown International District, the museum was named after Wing Luke, the first Asian American elected to public office in the Pacific Northwest. This museum approaches, um, approaches shared histories in a unique way. With an emphasis on creating a living institution, the museum honors the stories, artifacts, and memories of immigrants in a community-driven space. In 1991, Ron Chu joined their team as the executive director and served for 16 years initiating approaches that put social justice and direct community engagement at the forefront. He also led the museum to become a National Park Service affiliated area and the first Smithsonian affiliate in the Pacific Northwest. Today, as principal of Chu Communications, Mr. Chu works toward assisting cultural organizations in preserving oral and written histories in efforts to work towards a more tolerant society. Mr. Chu is also the current director of the International Community Health Services Foundation, which helps raise money for clinics serving low-income immigrants and refugees in over 50 languages. Mr. Chu is the recipient of the Ford Foundation's Leadership for a Changing World Award and the American Association of Museums Centennial Honor Roll, which recognizes the top 100 people who support the profession and help make America's museums places of discovery, inspiration, joy, and lifelong learning. Joining Mr. Chu on stage is David C. Barnett, senior reporter and producer for arts at IdeaStream. Mr. Barnett's won numerous local and national awards for his radio and television stories over the past 25 years. He's produced dozens of features for various NPR news programs, and most recently, for PBS NewsHour. Esteemed guests, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Ron Chu and David C. Barnett. This is a particularly timely discussion today. In recent years, many of our legacy cultural institutions here in Cleveland and around the country have adopted programs of inclusion and diversity, trying to remake themselves into places that welcome a broad swath of their community. No longer is it okay to be a fortress that ignores the interests of people who live a few hundred yards from your marble walls. The Ron Chu started making such changes nearly three decades ago. But you didn't come to this work with a degree in museum studies. How does one go from being a journalist to a museum director? Um, <clears throat> it was a, a strange journey, I would say. Um, you know, a little bit of my background, I'm uh, the child of uh, immigrants. 
my mother worked um, in the sewing factories in Seattle uh, during a period where there's quite a bit of um, the sweatshops. They hadn't moved overseas yet. Uh, my father was uh, a waiter in a restaurant in Chinatown. Um, so my dream uh, growing up as the first in my family uh, to pursue a higher education was to become a journalist because uh, I wanted to uh, capture and share some of the stories that I had learned and heard about growing up, both my parents' stories as well as the people in my community. Uh, so I trained to become a journalist and that's sort of what I did for uh, early part of my career. Um, later on, um, uh, after I'd done that for a number of years, the sister of Wing Luke, the namesake of the museum, had approached me about the possibility of heading up the museum because she knew I was very interested in community history. I told her I wasn't qualified, I didn't know anything about museums. Um, she says, well, we're, we're trying a new direction. Wing, who was the first uh, Asian American elected official in Pacific Northwest, would have wanted something like this, which uh, is an institution that's rooted in the community. I said, fine. Submitted my application, and to my surprise, I got hired. Um, and so uh, it was really that transition from my interest in the stories of people in my community uh, to an institution that then had the opportunity to share that with the public. What, we, let's give a little context. What was the Wing Luke Museum as you walked into it? Was it pretty much a repository for relics? It was a tiny historical society, much like uh, uh, every city, town, has a small historical society, <laughs> mostly retired folks, volunteer-driven, uh, and um, small audience, very staid, very static, very passive. Not necessarily connected to issues happening here now, but really more about preserving what used to be. Uh, so that's that was a museum. It was a volunteer small storefront museum, and the transformation happened after uh, I began to institute um, uh, my journalist view, which yeah. was th this institution has to deal with here and now and the issues that are happening in the community today. You're coming from being a journalist, which is pretty much everyday kind of thing, to the museum world, which is a little slower, right? How, how, was there, were there difficulties in that transition? Uh, it was crazy, David. Uh, so? The pace uh, was startlingly different. Uh, you know, journalists, and sure you, you're aware of this, you know, you got to get things done right away. There, there's no lag time. So you come inside a profession that's used to pre-planning over a period of sometimes years yep. when the issue may have already come and gone. So I came and started creating these uh, fairly quick, uh, quickly based oral history, um, interview based, topical um, exhibitions. Uh, my colleagues in the museum Field, thought I was kind of crazy. Why? Why? You need, don't you need planning time? I said, Well, I got to get this done. There's a deadline coming, and for them, a deadline was very different from what I had in mind. Uh, and then uh, my uh, notion of oral history was very different from theirs, because as a journalist, you know, you know, you get your notes and you, you're done a half hour 
45 minutes later. For them, it's, you kind of sit on it, you consult with subject experts, and you mull over things and so forth. And so it, it was quite shocking, I would say. Did, did, you, did, you, did you have memories of going to museums as a kid? And uh, uh, did they strike you as boring and dead? <laughs> Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm in a room Not with uh, other uh, museum professionals. Yes, here. of course. I get it. <laughs> They're my I get colleagues. That. And many you know? changes yeah. are happening, but yeah. we must yeah. admit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my early memories actually were of uh, two museums. One was this Goodwill Memory Lane Museum. Yeah. It was a free museum, uh, basically things that were uh, um, retrieved, salvaged from donations and they're put behind these glass cases that no dis, you know context or display yeah. so forth but it was free and my parents went there and so I, I remember uh, them constantly calling me to leave because they were done shopping and I like I want to look at these things and what is this thing and there's no text or any explanation my other museum experience was with the Seattle Art Museum uh, it was located uh, in a park, a city park called Volunteer Park. A uh, big uh, mausoleum-like institution with big doors. Um, and um, I used to go there on the free days because uh, our family would have picnics on the lawn. Um, so I'd go in there and, and that also stirred this curiosity uh, in me. During this era where museums were really more cabinets of curiosity and not engaged and stuff. So it, it was a fairly empty place, it wasn't, but, it, but I liked it because I, I could sort of hide away for a while and my parents would leave me alone and, you know. Uh, but so that triggered again a little bit of my curiosity about museums. So, so you developed this model which is based on public committees, not curators. Was that a revolutionary idea at the time? Well, at the time, uh, I was considered on the outer fringes of the museum profession. I was basically considered a nut. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, because both talking about this shorter, topically based, uh, oral based, oral history based model that wasn't tethered to objects that were stuck back in a collection uh, was um, uh, jarring to folks. But you know, I was pretty committed to that. Plus, I had no museum background, right. and so that freed me up to uh, innovate and do whatever I chose. So, how does that work on a practical basis? Uh, this this public committees. How, how how does that work? Give me an example. Well, the the first piece, David, is really figuring out what what is the exhibition like, or I mean, what is the topic, what, what's going to be about. Um, when I arrived in the museum field. It was really about looking back in your collection, seeing what things you had, textiles or things that you could develop a theme around, or uh, objects that uh, you could borrow from a, a sister institution. Um, what I was interested in is, well, what is going on in the community that's of relevance that people should know about, that it could also prompt a dialogue and start some healing, perhaps. Um, and so, um, the first exhibition I did after I joined the museum was an exhibition in conjunction with the 50-year anniversary of the incarceration of Japanese Americans 
uh, on the West Coast. In Seattle, there were about 10,000 Japanese Americans uh, who were interned, uh, mostly American-born citizens, without um, the opportunity to uh, be tried. Right. And so that was being talked about in the community, but no one had ever done an exhibition on that. And the uh, inmates, the folks who were in the camps, had never shared that with their kids. I grew up with their kids, you see, and so uh, I was curious about that, and I thought, well, that would be an appropriate topic to do. And so in the beginning, David, I didn't I truthfully didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and uh, so Which was an advantage. Right, an advantage. And I said, hey, you guys, let's, let's do something. And I said, well, my parents won't talk about this thing. I said, well, we'll make it an exhibition. You know, there's a museum, which a museum at the time, and I think still even today, is considered sort of a neutral arbiter. Um, and so their parents felt, well, gosh, uh, museums asking us? They didn't know quite how small it was, but <laughs> nonetheless, it was a museum. Right. And so, okay, well, I guess we got to participate. And then that opened the door and we started planning. I, I, I still feel that you, you need some sort of cura culturally appropriate curatorial figure who shapes the exhibit. I mean, you can get the input from, from the public about what to do, but you still need that. It's sort of like a film director. Right. You know, there's someone's at the top, but they're, right. they're looking over the work of all these technicians and writers and scene, scene designers and that sort of thing. So they, you still need some kind of a curatorial sort right. of person, right? Right. We had a organizing committee. Um, so, you know, at the time, some of my museum colleagues said, yeah, you, you need a curator. You need some subject specialist. We actually applied to the NEH for funding. This was before I came aboard at the museum, and we got rejected um, because we didn't have a proper scholarly uh, advisory committee, um, uh, people with credentials and so forth. And at the time, I, you know, we don't need that. Um, but we need folks who are in the camps could share their stories. Uh, we also needed um, folks who could provide a little bit of distance. You know, um, there were community historians. Um, there were other folks who had observed what was happening. There were other non-Japanese Americans who understood what was going on during this time period. And we had the young folks who were interested in recovering these stories. So I think it was really more a community organizing um, strategy rather than <clears throat> one which involved the traditional model of how exhibitions are created. And again, not being tethered by any expectations uh, and being a relatively small institution that enabled us to start on this role. So you're getting a little pushback from even within your own institution saying, well, well, well we don't need that. And you say, oh yeah, we do need that, right? Yeah. Well, at the time, it, it helps to have crises. Uh, at the time, before I was being, uh, before I was hired, the museum was actually going to close mm -hmm. because of lack of interest, lack of audiences. Um, again, small historical society, not real, you know, doesn't have the legs to push forward. Um, and I used that you actually. You could leverage that. Right. Well, also with the community, I said, well, we have an opportunity to share your story. Help me. We can reshape this institution, but you've got to help me. And so, um, uh, at the time I started, we had a budget of, I'm guessing, $150,000. Uh, 
of which actually 50,000 was phantom, their debts and so forth. So we were going to close um, with the single exhibition through this community-based model with committees, you know, kind of group curatorial. We had a bunch of subcommittees and so forth. We raised, uh, I think it was $170,000, mm. more than the entire budget wow. of the institution because people cared about this issue and about um, the fact that we were willing to part with our authority and allow them inside. And so that single, single exhibition rescued the institution. We've got any number of really great museum curators here in Northeast Ohio who know and are sensitive to the subjects and the cultures that they are representing. Is there, is there anything wrong with that? Um, not at all. Um, but, you know, the, the, the paradigm I decided to shift. Um, and, and I taught after leaving the Wingwood Museum um, after 17 years, 17 years at the institution. Uh, at uh, the museum studies program at the University of Washington. And I, I you know, um, so curators are good, but what do you look for in, in that package? Um, do you also have community organizers? And you train community organizers as part of the professional development. Um, relationship building, is that a skill? I mean, you can be a great subject, um, expert, if you can't relate to people and bring other people inside your institutions, then you're at a dead end. So, so it's really more about rebalancing the equation and making it uh, uh, something that uh, is much more complete. What's your sense, since you started this and you kind of figured it out and said, oh, this is the way to go, do you have a sense of how high this is filtered up? through the museum profession. You, you're, you, you came from a small institution, but you know, what about the, the larger institutions? How, how high did this go? Well, initially, I, David, I wasn't actually aware a lot of eyes were on what was happening oh, yeah, yeah. with us. And I think largely because the initial exhibitions were so successful, the Japanese American incarceration exhibit, we had probably, and again, remember, you're talking about a 7,000 square foot facility. We had over 50,000 people come to our institution lined up around the block. Um, so uh, at the time, again, I wasn't aware. See, our art museum was sending their curators down to check out our design and- See what and you're doing. Yeah. See what we're doing. Museum of History and Industry came down. Uh, the Studio Museum in Harlem, there's a woman who came to see our art museum and worked there and says, I don't know if you know, we were watching what was going on. You know, so, so I wasn't really aware of a lot of that because I was just focused on what I felt was important for me to do within my skill set, which was as a journalist. And um, uh, now, of course, I've left the field for a, a few decades. Mm -hmm. I still mentor a lot of young folks. Um, a lot of them actually are surprised that I'm still alive because they, they oh studied my. me and, you know, they read I know some, that feeling. Right? Okay. <laughs> We're about the same age, right? Yeah, so, yep, yep. Uh, but you know, so it's like, oh my gosh, Mr. Chu, like, you know, you're alive. You know, wow. I, hey, I didn't yeah. know I had expired. Uh, but um, you know, so it is still something that, you know, I, I think is important. This sure. notion of community engagement, how you do it in an appropriate way. You know, uh, we still have 
a large immigrant refugee community. We're still struggling with a lot of the same issues in communities of color. I heard about, you know, there's a reference to the public charge issues. Um, you know, uh, my own background is as the um, uh, child, the grandchild of an illegal immigrant who came here in 1911, uh, fleeing poverty, war, uh, famine. Uh, you know, my father came also from the same village, fleeing the same stuff. My mother lost both her brothers in war, lost her mother. Um, so um, I lived under the same shadow, but I think museums have an opportunity uh, to continue to, and this is where history is important, to, to make sure that we know that we're, what we're going through happened once, once upon a time. I, I, living today, uh, it's, I, I think back on when I, when I was born and I was a kid growing up, I was just you know, a generation less from World War II and all the horrors that happened. And it's just amazing again to be reminded, we hear you, know, you come in, in in the early 90s and some of these people have never talked in all those years. It's amazing given the world we're in now that it's. Well, you know, I, um, as I say, my father was a waiter. Um, uh, in, in a Chinatown restaurant uh, for 30 years. Um, so I worked there as well, because back in that era, that's age 13, you start working to support yourself and your family. Um, but I remember spending a lot of time uh, with him, which is great, because otherwise I wouldn't have had time with him, because he was working seven days a week, yeah. uh, 12 hours a day, yeah. without a day yeah. off, yeah. for a dollar, dollar an hour. But I spent a lot of time with him and the waiters and all those folks who were part of an era of exclusion. And, you know, um, it, it gave me an opportunity to appreciate the struggles that they went through. Uh, because here I was born in America. I had the opportunity right. to, to migrate and move up and, and um, an opportunity to, to share some of their uh, stories was then my goal, and then the University of Washington provided me that, that window. Is this uh, pattern of public, uh, public curation, essentially, public advice on curation, is that most appropriate for a small institution like Wing Luke, or are there the larger, like century-old institutions that have kaleidoscopic collections? Can they learn, what can they take away from your experience? I think it applies across the board, David. Uh, you know, we all live in the same world. We all have the same obligation to be inclusive. Um, I've found myself uh, continuing to advise some larger institutions because they want to move in that direction. You know, how do we connect? You know, because the larger institutions, the demographics, as you know, are changing. And so we need to bring people from our communities into that realm. Uh, I entered uh, arts and culture in an arena where uh, my own background wasn't necessarily embraced as part of the arts and cultural realm. Uh, it was always looking back to Asia, sort of these grand treasures and antiquities and so forth. Stuff. Stuff. Um, I was looking at the fact that 
uh, my community had been there. My grandfather had been there in the 1800s, building the city, even though my father was born in China and had to come here illegally because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, we're all part of the same fabric, and I've always been committed to, to being part of um, continuing to broaden the Wing Luke model into large institutions as well. Can you give an example of that? How did that work exactly? So somebody came to you and said, hey, I li really like what you're doing. How can you, can you share with us maybe some advice you gave to a larger institution, like something they could do? Yeah, you know, I, uh, uh, well, I'm trying to, there's so many institutions I've done work uh, with. Uh, I uh, uh, did some work for a museum of history and industry as just one example where they were trying to broaden their exhibitions. Very uh, typical uh, big his history museum. Uh, they were struggling with audiences. and They were basically um, aging people who weren't right. broadening beyond their own generation. Right. Um, so I talked to them about uh, the need to not simply have community advisory committees and curators who are non-people uh, of color. So, so you can just hire some people who are diverse. Uh, change the criteria a little bit, you know? So a person may not have a background in our history or whatever, but they're a community organizer. Well, um, weight that a little bit. Um, give power to these community um, organizing advisory committees actually let them decide things. And there's always this hesitancy, well, they might screw things up. Well, you might screw it up too, so what's the <laughs> difference, you know? It's just sort of that not letting go that is really a barrier. So that's been a, mostly the focus of my work there. Our theme today is cultivating social justice through the arts. Elaborate on that a little bit. I'll bet social justice is not a mission that most people would associate with museums. I. Um, was inspired by the uh, African-American civil rights movement. Uh, as a child, a baby boomer uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, I saw how the churches were yep. instrumental as a respected institution in that transformation. Uh, and they used their authority appropriately. I looked at museums and saw them uh, not using that opportunity. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if museums could actually not simply see themselves as apart from the fray, but actually involved in um, uh, that discussion? Uh, and then also transforming neighborhoods. Uh, my last uh, phase at the Wingwood Museum was uh, a capital campaign to redevelop a historic hotel into uh, a living museum. Uh, I should mention one of the believers actually in the vision is sitting here today, Margot Copeland, uh, because she got it right away uh, in terms of what I was trying to do. Uh, and so, um, you know, that naturally evolved as, um, you know, um, you know, if you're a person of color, if you're an immigrant ref or a refugee, you sort of know some of what's important to you. And if you follow that thread, 
it takes you to the social justice issues. You're the, you moved from Wing Luke to your own company, Chew Communication. What's, what's, the, what's the goal there? Well, I should mention, because my boss might see this one okay. day. I'm working full time still, you know. Okay. Uh, so let's get that out of let's the way. Let's put that out there. Um, on the side, when I have time, yes. uh, I do uh, community oral history documentation. Uh, I also help uh, small organizations that are birthing, um, often their community centers, cultural centers, uh, with capacity building. Uh, and uh, so I do book publications, um, you know, uh, web-based uh, oral histories, a variety of things. You've seen a growth in, the, in, in interest, uh, obviously since the 1990, but 91, uh, in, in, in this sort of work, in, in reaching out to communities. What do you, what do you suppose is behind that? What, what's in the air right now? Well, uh, I would say that the, you know, the nation is changing. The texture and color of this nation is changing, whether people uh, choose to embrace that or not. And I've always seen that as an asset. Um, so it's really um, taking our collective strength um, and building on that and finding a way to value that uh, and um, also seeing that we're all part of the same community. I'm David C. Barnett, senior reporter and producer for Arts at IdeaStream, and today we're listening to a forum with Ron Chu, principal of Chu Communications and former executive director of the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. We're about to begin an audience Q&A. So if you've got questions for Ron, and there's a question I see over there. Excuse me. Hello, uh, I just wanted to ask you, as a child of undocumented immigrants, how do you personally feel when you see the current policies against the undocumented? Um, I, I, um, I feel for the children. Um, not that I don't feel also for other family members, but uh, as I described, you know, I'm the uh, child of undocumented uh, immigrants, and living uh, in the shadows is a hard uh, thing to do. Um, you're always afraid somebody's going to take your parents away. Uh, you're always afraid of what you might say. You're ashamed. Uh, you, you live in this sort of nether world. Um, and so that causes uh, a lot of trauma. Um, you know, people come here um, not because they're in some other place and they're saying, wow, I'm going to take jobs away from somebody else. You know, the, in the case of my grandfather, he was fleeing, he was fleeing starvation. He's not thinking about regulations, rules, quotas, or anything. He, he wants to survive and provide for his family in the same way that uh, my father came over um, um, because he needed a life. My mother came because she was fleeing the Japanese occupation uh, of China. Uh, she had lost, she lost her mother, she lost her brothers. Um, so um, I feel for the children and the trauma that we're causing. 
uh, to another generation, and I, I don't think that's right. Uh, I should mention also my um, dad's younger brother uh, was here in the States. Um, during World War II, he uh, fought in Italy as part of the 87th Mountain Division. He was killed in combat. Um, and so, you know, he, he fought for this country. Uh, he was the child of uh, <clears throat> an illegal immigrant. Um, so I have a, a stake in this country. Um, and so I, I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, we all have a stake here. You know, we talk about borders, boundaries, walls, and things. You know, but at the end of the day, we all have a stake here. And it's important to be reminded of that. We have a museum director over here. Hi, thank you for your really engaging conversation. I have a two-part question. Um, over the years when you've had these advisory committees and you are presenting narratives, what um, happens when there are contested histories and what kinds of mediation do you, um, have you observed that have been effective? Not just different perspectives, but when there have been contested views of a story or of a history. And um, the other is with all the tens of thousands of visitors who come after you, you know, present these exhibitions, what strategies do you have for engaging their voices um, as part of the ongoing uh, presentation of the exhibition? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so these community-based, um, community-organized exhibits are not easy. Uh, I'm sure you've figured that out uh, very early on. Um, so it re requires some, a lot of clarity on the front end. Um, often you will have conflicts that emerge, but it, it needs to be clear where, where is the final decision-making happening. Uh, I mentioned uh, ceding authority to folks you bring into the community process, but it doesn't mean you vanish as a museum um, official or representative. So those responsibilities need to be clarified because there are times where you'll need to intervene. Uh, we, uh, in the exhibition on Japanese American incarceration, end up with some arguments and conflicts between, uh, in one case, uh, Japanese American veterans who volunteered for the US uh, side and fought overseas, conflicts between those folks and individuals who were called the no-no boys, who were the resistors, who went to prison and decided not to fight for this country. And some of the vets considered those folks traitors. So who gets included? Um, I've found as a useful strategy that um, when you center the museum narrative and story under a fairly broad umbrella where if you engage oral histories, everybody's story has some legitimacy. It's much like, um, I think, the perspective of the city club. You know, there's an umbrella. There's a place for all viewpoints. You establish that on the front end. But at the same time, you don't shy away from 
having perspective inside that project. Um, so that, that's been the sweet spot formula. Hard work, um, clarity on the front end, um, and then the museum authorities appropriately intervening when necessary and staying out of it when not needed. Does that answer the question? And then she's wondering how, how do you get the, it, once the exhibit is up, how do you get the additional voices in if they want to get in? Um, well, there again, and I think a lot of museums have gotten really clever at this, there's usually some section of the exhibition you can build on, for example. So viewers coming in, they could videotape their story or a piece of their story and it gets incorporated. I grew up in an era, I wrote about this for Museum News once upon a time, uh, about that I always found it funny that when I entered the profession there were permanent exhibits and there were changing exhibits. Because I thought to me, I don't think I've ever seen a, a permanent exhibit in my life. Um, you know, ultimately everything will, will be changed. Um, so I think uh, often building a framework where the exhibition evolves, maybe even over the course of a run, is a good strategy. And people are getting more clever about doing that. So I would like to go back and refer to the comment you made about the um, positive aspects of increasing racial and cultural diversity in America. It's been 75 years since the Korematsu case. It's been 40 years since the Congressional Commission on Wartime Relocation. And there's now a very dark side to feelings in America about cultural and racial diversity, particularly aimed toward people of Islamic and Hispanic descent. What role can museums and the arts community pay, play in galvanizing some kind of government response to this increasing dark cloud over our diversity in American democracy? Education is so critical. I find often it's the fact that people aren't exposed. Uh, we did an ex exhibition at the Wing Wook Museum when I was there on the Sikh community. This was the post-911 era. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize we have this whole community um, of people who wear turbans, who are mistaken for whatever, you know, because during that era, you just, people were lashing out. Um, museums, um, and not simply museums, but a number of culture institutions and all of us in our lives can educate and expose people. So just by having a framework where you choose, there again, it goes back to my journalism background, because I was thinking not of what objects do I have in the back of my house collection, but where can we have an impact? How can we meaningfully uh, engage the public and educate them about um, other people who don't look like them, who may have come from a different background, but at the end of the day, we're all pretty similar. Um, so that, that's been where my energies have been placed, is how we educate people in a way that sometimes you've got to be non-confrontational. I mean, you know, we often um, end up in our own little worlds, and we don't, um, reach beyond those, and when we do that, we lose those precious opportunities, simply to just talk about 
uh, people who come from a different background. I'm, I'm blessed because I work for a community clinic system that serves over 50 different language groups. Um, we're not a huge institution. We have 11 cl clinic sites uh, in the greater Seattle area. But uh, every day, you know, you go to the lunchroom and there's, everyone's talking different languages and English ends up being the thing that patches people together. But you get exposed to folks and you r realize, uh, and many of our, many people we serve are um, from a Muslim background. Uh, many East African, uh, East, former Eastern Soviet Republic uh, countries, and you meet them and you realize at the end of the day you, gotta, you share a lot in common. You're talking about the International Community Health Services Foundation? Yes. yes. Any lessons from the museum experience that you're applying to that? Um, well, I'm trying to, we're actually, I'm in the midst of working, the reason I got to get back to Seattle, we're working on an exhibition in our lobby. Ah, there you go. Uh, so, ever, the, ever the museum guy. Right, right. Well, you never leave anything behind, right? right? So when you, if you ever enter healthcare, we'll talk. Oh, and, uh, I'll work on it. Yeah. I got your number. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, I said we should have exhibitions here. Now, a lot of larger hospitals have already figured that out. The community clinics have. And I said, these people who are our people, their stories are very rich. Uh, and just being able to come to a space that embraces you, that embraces who you are, uh, is so important because then that place is no longer not part of your life. It's right. not formed. Right. It's like, and like any institution. It's a cold place unless yep. you, you make you humanize it. Yep. Yeah. yeah, another question over there. Are there another over there? Hi, I'm Elaine Sao. I'm with uh, Asian Services in Action, and we have a community health center. Uh, and I was just wondering, um, you know, is are the decisions that the community uh, committees make perhaps about um, art selections um, or the, the topics of, for the stories, or maybe your decisions about the topics for the stories. Um, what are the strategies when you're uh, addressing uh, the needs of the community health centers? How are you message, messaging the, the need to serve um, you know, communities like immigrants and refugees? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, so wearing another hat, um, just simply as uh, somebody in the healthcare field. Uh, I should also mention, I'm director of the foundation, ICHS Foundation, not CEO of ICHS. And you, I'm sure you may have met um, our director, Teresita Batiola. She's very active on a lot of these issues. But what we do is we, we strategize, uh, again, about how we um, support the cause of healthcare access. Um, it's often through the stories of our patients and the people we serve. You know, people don't realize uh, these people when, you know, when public charge becomes an issue and, um, you know, our patients are directly affected because as I'm sure you know, people don't wanna come in for these services because they think their family will be deported. Mm -hmm. These are services that they're, legitimately entitled to. Um, so uh, the stories of people 
we spend enough time with these folks, we get to know them. They're basically like family. Um, and so we try to incorporate those in, in the messaging. We share that, um, you know, the impact of what um, cutting off some of these benefits uh, will do to some of these families who are just trying to get established and provide for their families. So um, there again, we're, we're now starting to gather a bank of, we've got a oral history initiative inside the institution. Uh, and a lot of these folks, uh, because of HIPAA regulations and so forth, we, we also navigate, um, try to be respectful of people's privacy and so forth. But um, a lot of them are very uh, interested in, um, you know, um, helping support the cause because uh, for them it's a matter of life and death. Storytelling just seems to be a theme that you're weaving throughout this whole thing. It is. It's very important. Mm, microphone to another. There we go. Um, thank you. So, partially a follow-up question to that. Um, in your experience working in different industries and thinking about storytelling from a journalism perspective, from a healthcare perspective, from a museum perspective, what do you think is unique about working specifically in a museum or with a collection or with the kind of concrete visual experience people can have with objects or with an exhibition space? Is there anything that's different about this kind of a civic dialogue if we were having it at the Wing Luke Museum, say, from the City Club? Um, there's not a lot of difference. Uh, I wear a, a, a another hat. I'm on. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Where do I you hang them? Well, I don't have a lot of hair, so oh. there's plenty of room. I can uh, relate. Yeah, yeah, I, I noticed that. Me and Malthrop, yeah, too. Yeah, so you're going to follow me in that absolutely, arena as absolutely. well. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But, uh, you know, for my kids' generation, you know, they, they don't have as many walls as, and I think the advent of the internet and their generation, there's not a lot of walls. But, you know, I'm on the Seattle Public Library Board, uh, Board of Trustees. And so, you know, what's the difference between an exhibition in a library space and um, a museum or an art gallery or a community center uh, or a school um, administrative office or auditorium? So, so these boundaries, I think, are um, a little bit created for a different time. And so we should be operating in all these arenas. Uh, I'm hoping by the time I'm gone, I'll have dipped into another uh, arena. I know Margot is retired. We talked about retirement. I'm trying to follow her. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there's lots of opportunities, and there are, there are no boundaries. And there we go, over there. I'd like to ask you to comment on an analogy between intelligence and ethnicity. As a fellow boomer, both you and I have, I suspect, equally been thrilled to see the death of the concept of a unitary measure of intelligence. When I was a child, everybody had a number that was an IQ. That is how IQ was, uh, intelligence was measured was on a single scale. And it is a joy of the last 50 to 60 years that nobody, thinks there's a unitary measure of intelligence anymore. We all know the world is full of almost an infinite number of kinds of intelligence that deserve many different measurements. 
When we were kids, you and I, there was more of a risk that there'd be a unitary measure of ethnicity. What is the best? It was an issue in Nazi Germany, and interestingly, it was an issue in old China. Everybody else was from some lesser place. Uh, have you seen, in the field that you know a lot about, a comparable death of the idea that there is an ideal ethnicity? Boy, that's a deep question. I'm not even <laughs> sure I can grasp that. Uh, so uh, another piece of my background, I, what, I remember those IQ tests. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember those, uh, and, and I remember partly because I, I was never very good at it. Uh, I also struggled coming from a Chinese-speaking home uh, during my early years. So there, there was a point at which they, they actually thought there were some developmental issues with me, and who knows what they were, because I didn't say anything in class because I didn't have a clue what was being said. Um, so one year my uh, report card was so bad, you know, you know, they had some instruction to send me some special instructional summertime thing. I gave the stuff to my mom. She couldn't read it, so she threw it away. Oh, man. You know, so I continued to struggle until eventually, you know, over time you just sort of sort things out, right? And you kind of, you know, get anchored if you're halfway sort of awake. Um, but, um, boy, in terms of, uh, you're talking about profession in terms of museum profession, some unitary kind of, or? As you look at the world as a whole. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've always um, tried to see the best in everybody, because uh, everybody has something to offer. I think a sort of oblique way of answering your question. You know, we're, despite appearances on some levels politically, you know, we're becoming a much more open and exposed um, society. Again, partly as a result of my kids' generation, technology, and so forth. So, so there's less of those value judgments about what somebody brings to the table. I hope that continues as a trend, that we all are open-minded about what people um, have to offer and what intelligence means. Because we all have some intelligence to be walking around and, and functioning in this society. And another question. There we go. Thank you for coming today. This has been very interesting. My question relates to your history of developing exhibitions and lessons learned. So when you develop exhibitions, have you found certain ex exhibitions or the way they're presented appeal to different types of ethnic, and ethnic groups? Um, and another part of that question is, is there a way to, um, is there certain elements of an exhibition that will be more effective in, in drawing a larger audience of ethnic groups and exposing them to a broader, um, broader set of ideas. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, so it's important at the front end of any exhibition to be very intentional about what you're trying to achieve. Um, so when I was at the Wingwood Museum, uh, there were exhibitions that specifically were a little more hyper-local, laser-focused, on organizing a particular community. Uh, and 
so we had some exhibitions that were bilingual and they're specifically to hit a certain generation of folks or generations uh, and they they might have been to empower or lift up or include a particular group not necessarily with the goal as much of engaging a broader audience and so there are et specific ethnic specific exhibitions that way we also had pan-asian exhibitions which incorporated a number of groups that we wanted to bring to the same table so for example japanese american uh, incarcerees and some members of the uh, muslim Sikh community south asian community it'd be nice to get them together so let's create something around that or it could be a cross racial uh, um, dialogue uh, art based uh, so a whole variety of different so th there's no one size fits all kind of exhibition but it's important to, to vary that um, because you can't do everything with every exhibition uh, and the other thing that I think is starting to break down now too when I was planning exhibitions in the past uh, during my tenure you know you had rigidly fixed uh, history exhibitions or uh, uh, science exhibitions or uh, art exhibitions and they all fell in one category again the my kids generation that what are you talking about you know ethnic specific museum mainstream museums you know th there's still some differences but and differences in focus but I like to think that we've evolved to a place where um, you have some intentionality on the front end and you're not trying to do everything all with one exhibition. I'd love for you to comment on the International Council of Museums proposed definition of a museum. And for those who have not followed this controversy since the summer, um, for the last 50 years or so, the International Council has had roughly the same definition with just a few tweaks to what it is to be a museum. Um, this summer, a new 100-word definition was proposed, and it includes phrases like, Museums are supposed to be participatory and transparent, work in active participation with diverse communities, and aim to contribute to human dignity, social justice, global equality, and planetary well-being. Wow. That definition is so controversy that on the 7th, the General Assembly, instead of voting to accept it, <coughs> voted to postpone a decision. I don't know if you've been following this, but I'd be very interested in your comments. Wow, thank you for informing me. Uh, I've been gone from the profession, and it's nice to see an evolution. Uh, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the museum field, uh, again, a few decades uh, back, uh, very, very different place. Um, just the fact that we're engaging on issues and we're considering a participatory aspect to that uh, was considered revolutionary. Also, when I was involved in bringing oral histories into the museum, uh, being a former journalist, mm -hmm. I was considered a little bit like, well, that's not oral history. You know, you're talking about journalism. And then I would say, well, a journalist working on documenting a story, whether it's through notes and so forth, is, in my mind, an oral history. You're talking to somebody. You know, I don't know how that's evolved. Um, because again, the, the world has changed, but uh, I'm excited. 
and I'm glad you told me because I've been out of the loop for a while. Redefining what a museum is. Ron Chu, thanks for giving us some insight into the significance and important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, David, and thank you, Ron. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club. Today we've been enjoying a forum with Ron Chu. He's principal at Chu Communications and the former executive director of the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Mr. Chu and Mr. Barnett. It's the first time I've ever called you Mr. Barnett. <laughs> Special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.